Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 6, 19 through 22. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is good to be with you this morning on the Lord's Day. If you are new to our church, we are slowly working our way through the Old Testament book of Ezra. And this book is all about rebuilding a worshiping community in the midst of a culture that's hostile to you. It has already shown itself to be surprisingly relevant for us in our current cultural moment that God has called us, like the returned exiles of Israel, to rebuild a worshiping community, a church here in the Quad Cities that takes God seriously and desires to shape all of our life and practices around him and his word. I like to share this statistic pretty often uh, that Barna Research released a study in 2014 that named the Quad City, Quad Cities, the 27th least church city in the United States of America. At that time, 41% of our population had not been to any type of religious service in the past six months. While the COVID-19 pandemic and the ongoing secularization of our society has only made these statistics worse. I would imagine that if Barna were to do this research again today, the number would be much closer to 50%. That's half of our neighbors, coworkers, and friends and family that do not get to experience the unspeakable joy that comes from worshiping the true and living God in the body of Christ. Many of them are completely cut off from the gospel. They have no idea who God is, no idea what God has done to save them from their sins and to give us a totally new life with him in a world without end. And here's the chief lesson in the book of Ezra. If we want to see change in our society, if we want to see God change our city and God change our households, we must begin right here by investing in his church. So our goal at Sacred City is to build a church that is what Jesus says it is, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. We want to build a church that is both uniquely distinct from the world and in one sense for the world. We want to be holy unto the Lord and yet distinctly missional to our cities. Now, historically, this has been very difficult. It's a very difficult kind of tightrope for the church to walk. The church either devolves into a holy huddle, a group of devout Christians who kind of circle the wagons and hunker down and hope to remain unstained from the world while the outside world goes to hell. Or 
more often than not, the church falls off on the other side of the rope and becomes worldly. They so long to reach the world or be accepted by the world that they become just like the world. When the church starts chasing cool, it becomes cool and not holy and not devoted unto the Lord. We become just like the world, not knowing that it's our light in the midst of darkness that's, most, that's supposed to make us distinct. Our cities will not be changed by a church that looks like the world. Our cities will not be changed by a church that is lukewarm in its affections for Jesus. Our idol-worshiping neighbors will not be saved by idol-worshiping church members. There's got to be something significantly different about us. And if there's not, why should the world even care? This morning, we get to see and study the most significant event that happened in the Old Testament. It was the one event that made Israel, as God's chosen people, totally distinct from the rest of the world. It is the event that is told and retold over and over again in the Old Testament. And it's the paradigm that the whole New Testament is built upon. In fact, if you don't understand the significance of the Passover and the Exodus, you will have a hard time understanding Jesus and what he came to do. It's in the story of the Passover and the Exodus where you learn what's wrong with the world what's wrong with you, and what God has done to make it right. And so it's an important story for us to revisit this morning and study. And so would you pray with me that God would bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Father God, we humble ourselves before your word. We invite you and your word to do what you proclaim it will do, that your word is light in the midst of darkness, that your word is a sword, that your word is a hammer, and I ask that it would come in and it would smash hearts of stone. Any hard heart, any heart that is proud and arrogant, that you would smash it, Father God, that any heart that is wounded, you would heal, that your word would tear down and your word word would build up, that you would do what you declare your word to do. Father, I ask... As a sinful man, I ask that you would help me. I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me. Anything I say this morning that is wrong, that is inaccurate, that is foolish, that is of me, anything that is true, anything that is anointed, anything that is in line with your word is from you. And I ask that your people would receive it as such. Father, we have faith in your word. Do what you desire to do in hearts this morning for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today we find ourselves studying uh, an exciting season in the life of God's Old Testament church. God's people have finally finished the 20-year construction project on the new temple in Jerusalem. They have persevered in the midst of all kind of obstacles and adversaries because God was with them in their work. 
Last week, we saw them dedicate this new temple to the Lord by giving what they had. It was a relatively small offering compared to the first temple dedication. But the main point was the temple is finished. They can now worship God the way he wants to be worshiped. And the joy of the Lord was with them and the joy of the Lord was their strength. This week we learn, surprise, God never changes. Now, it's been 70 years since the temple was destroyed. Many scholars believe the exiles haven't worshiped God through the celebration of the Passover in 70 years. That's a whole generation of people that have come and gone. And what does God want them to do once they've restored the right worship of him back in the temple? What does he want them to do? He does not want them to innovate. He does not want them to get creative here and ask, hmm, what do the people want? What's it going to take to pack out the temple again? What's it going to take to get our unbelieving neighbors to come into the temple? What kind of vibe should our service put off? To think in those terms is to think man-centeredly. We put man in the center and we ask, what does man want? The, the, the answer is always the same. Man wants comfortable entertainment. We want a little pick-me-up. That's not how to shape the right worship of God. We don't first ask, how can we shape our gatherings around man and our desires so that they will come and worship God? If we are to have a God-centered worship community, we are first to ask, what does God want from us? What has God required of us in his word? How has he revealed to us the ways in which we are to rightly worship him? So the people in Ezra 6 do exactly what we're meant to do, and that is to go back to God's word and follow it in detail. They go back to the law of Moses and follow it in detail. So what do they do? They build the temple. They, they set up sacrifices. They set up the priesthood again for the service of God at Jerusalem. And then a few weeks later, because the calendar calls for it, the Passover arrives. And so they set up to celebrate the Passover. Now, many of us might not really remember the story from the Old Testament. And so what is the Passover? Well, the Passover was a celebration that took place each year in the second half of April, according to our calendar. And it was a meal, first off, that they would celebrate. And then it was a week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You could say, and the Old Testament uh, in Exodus does call it, it, called, it, you could call it a ritual. It was called a rite. God called it a rite an annual liturgy, a rhythm of worship that was meant to shape them into a certain type of person. In other words, 
God thought this event, the Passover, was so important that he commanded his people to reenact it in a ritual, reenact it in a liturgy every single year. Listen to this. No matter how stale it got, no matter how rote, no matter how dull or routine it became, see, we have this fascination in our society that whatever we feel and whatever is new is better, okay? That is folly. That is foolish. Your feelings can never be trusted, okay? And listen to this. A ritual is far more powerful than your feelings. A habit will shape your life far more powerfully than any type of feeling you're praying or asking or wanting from God, okay? Devotion to the Lord should primarily primarily be about rhythms and ritual and liturgy rather than hoping one day I'm going to wake up and really feel like reading my Bible. If you're waiting for the day you really feel like reading the Bible, that day may never come. Or like many of you, it happens when I'm preaching the word right here and you're hearing it under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and you get really excited and then Monday morning, boom, the snooze feels a whole lot better. Liturgies are powerful. And this is interesting because even parents, sometimes we get caught up and our kids, you know, we should take them to a service where our kids really get a lot out of it. Not necessarily. Here's what God says in Exodus 12 when he's telling the people to do this annual festival, this annual liturgy. He says this, and when your, quote, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of his people in Israel when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. The people bowed their head and worshiped. Listen, their worship gathering was meant to cause outsiders and their own children to go, Dad, why do we do that? What's up with this animal sacrifice thing? What's up with this eating this meal thing? What's up with these wearing these certain clothes at this time of year? What's up with this festival? Their annual meal, their worship was meant to, it wasn't 100% comprehensible to outsiders or children. It demanded a conversation. It's meant to spark some kind of questions because it was so weird and foreign to the outside world and even kids. Kids say, Dad, what the heck is going on? Why do we do what we do? And the fathers weren't meant to go, oh no, ask your mom. <laughs> Call the pastor. I don't know why we do what we do. I just go, go, go in and go through the motions too. The fathers were meant to know why we do what we do and the answer was found in the story of God, in the scriptures. So they were meant to take their kids back to the Passover and back to the Exodus and teach them what, why we're doing what we're doing. Now listen, the same is true for our, our worship gathering on Sunday morning. There's a reason why we do everything that we do on Sunday morning. 
There's a reason why our liturgy, our form of worship is set up the way that it is. There's a reason why we hear God call us in to worship him each week. There's a reason why we confess our sins each week. There's a reason why we stand up for the reading of God's word and we profess our faith together. And when someone asks you, why do we do that? You need to be able to answer them, including your children. And if you can't, we did a whole sermon series on it last year, and you can go find it on our website called Liturgy, Why We Do What We Do. To put it simply, our Sunday liturgy tells the gospel story. It tells the story of God, and it is meant to properly orient you to reality. What do I mean by that? All week long, we get into the mindset that we are the center of our story and everybody else is meant to find their orbit around us. They are at best characters, supporting characters in our story. But on Sunday morning, you are meant to come into here and be reoriented to a God-centered liturgy that your life is meant to orbit around. See, our world is doing everything possible to get us to believe that we are the authors of our story, that there is no one above us. And our great task in the world is to shape reality around our desires. Instead of shaping our desires around reality. See, and our Sunday gathering tells the God-centered real story that God is ultimate reality. Everything that exists, exists that as he made it, that creation is a gift from God. You cannot go inside yourself and determine who you are. You cannot recreate yourself any more than you could cause yourself to be born a certain way. Creation is a gift. Reality is a gift that must be received. You don't reject it and try to reshape it into your own image. Everything in his world is contingent upon God's existence. If God didn't exist, nothing else would either. He is the author. Everything else is a prop or a character in his story. And our liturgy is meant to be the smelling salts that wakes us up to that reality. Whoa, it's not about me. It's not just about me. God is here getting our attention. Every Sunday morning, we are to take the red pill and wake up to the reality that we are not the center of the universe God is. Now, that can be scary at first. To wake up and realize that the meaning and purpose of life is not found within and you can't create it for yourself, but rather the meaning and purpose of life is God. That he is who you were made for and you will never find peace or be happy until your soul rests in him? At first, that can be terrifying. If he were a tyrant, that would be a miserable existence, but he isn't. He is goodness itself. Now, we would never know this on our own. So what did he do? He revealed this to us. He revealed himself to us in the Bible, 
And that is why it's important to read the whole of scripture and come to understand his story, what he has done and why we can trust him with our lives. And this is why it's important for us when we get to this section in Ezra, okay, the people celebrated Passover. We don't just skip over it and assume that we know or remember what he was talking about. We actually go back to the story and look at it. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go back at the night of the original Passover, 700, 800 years earlier. Now, to find ourselves in the story, let me remind us, here's the situation. God called Abraham, a moon-worshiping, idol-worshiping man. He said, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. And God did it. And Abraham's descendants start multiplying, okay? He gets them uh, into the land of Egypt, and they be, they be, they're getting pretty powerful there. They're in the upper echelons of power. But as they multiply, and as they're growing, and as God's blessing this community, the world looks on it and says, oh, no, this is a threat to us. Pharaoh looked on it and said, this is a threat to my kingdom. So Pharaoh turns against the Israelites and begins to oppress them, makes them his slaves to build his kingdom upon. Now, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, 430 years to be exact. And Pharaoh hears this prophecy that from one of their children is gonna come a Messiah, is gonna come a savior, is gonna come a king. And so he begins to persecute them even more and become even more paranoid about losing his kingdom and losing his power and starts and gives an edict that commands all of the sons be killed. And God raises up a deliverer. He raises up Moses. He shields Moses from that wrath and he protects him and he delivers him. And Moses gets rescued out of the river, if you remember this, and raised in Pharaoh's own household. And then when the time is right, God calls Moses to go be his deliverer, to go speak to the most powerful person on the planet at the time. And this is what God says to Moses and tells Moses, go, to, go say to Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 11, verses four through seven, he says this. Thus says the Lord. Hear this. Israel is my firstborn son. Now pause. That's, that's unique. Up until this moment, God had never said, talked to anybody, called anybody his son. And he's looking as Israel is in slavery and he's saying, that's my son, my son, a people group. That's my son, right? Speaking to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God is not mincing words here. God is very clear what's going on in Egypt and what he expects from Pharaoh. He says, you have my people, my firstborn son, and you've been mistreating them, put them in slavery, and you've been killing them. And you, it, time's up. I'm king here. I determine the times and the seasons. You've had them for a while. You've had them for 430 years. Time's up. Now let them go so they can worship me. If you don't, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God also hardens Pharaoh's heart. 
Pharaoh says, who does this God think he is? I've got all kinds of gods in my kingdom. And he says, no, thank you, Yahweh. I don't know who you are. I don't recognize your lordship over me. There's a separation here between church and state. No, thanks. I don't, I don't need it. And what does God do? God sends plagues to Egypt. And every single one of the plagues, you need to, they're not random plagues. Every plague is, is, is an offense, an affront at one of Egypt's gods, so-called gods. Every, one, every single plague, God is showing, you worship this, let me show you I'm above that. You worship this aspect of creation, I'm above that. None of your people are in control. None of your priests are in control. None of your kings are in control. I am in control. All of it was meant to humble the hard heart of Pharaoh and to convince him to let his people go. God here is saying, you have enslaved and killed my firstborn son. You have mistreated them and refused to let them go. Therefore, I will take your firstborn sons. Now, can I just say here that this, this is a terrifying scene? Let's go to, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11, verses four through seven. <clears throat> so Moses said, so now the time comes, nine plagues, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He refuses to listen. So God sends the 10th. This is what he says, verse four. So Moses said, thus says the Lord. That word Lord means the covenant God of Israel, the God of all gods above you, Pharaoh. <clears throat> About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. First off, God is literally saying here, at midnight, I'm coming down. I've seen what you've been doing. I know what's in your heart. And I'm coming to hold you accountable. This is terrifying. Let's keep reading. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. I'm coming down there and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse seven, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God is making a distinction between his people and the world, between Israel and Israel. Egypt. He's saying, Egypt has enslaved and killed my firstborn son, Israel. That Egypt has mistreated them and refused to let them go. Therefore, I am coming to town to execute justice and judgment. And by that, I mean, I'm taking your firstborn sons. 
This is a terrifying scene. God is coming down. God is coming to town to execute divine justice. How do you prepare for that? You get a phone call, mother-in-law's coming to town, you got work to do. Gotta gotta clean that house, you got heart work to do, and you got housework to do more than likely. What do you do when God comes to town? Oh, nothing. I was born in a Christian home. I don't have to do anything. I'm an Israelite. I gotta do nothing. I don't have to do anything. I'm one of God's chosen people. Nothing. Oh, this will be fun. God's coming to town. He likes me. Nope. Thankfully, God doesn't let, make them figure it out on their own. I'm coming to town and they're just like worried. Oh, what do we do? He gives them very specific instructions. Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. Again, it's about April. It shall be the first month of the year for you to tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man, here we go, here's the preparations he's got to make. Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until, here it is, the 14th day of this month when the whole, <laughs> thankfully, God says exactly when he's going to show up, Okay. Coming to town the 14th day of the month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So God said he's coming at midnight at twilight. When, the, when, it, when it gets dark, you kill. I want you to take a lamb, spotless lamb, without blemish, firstborn lamb. It could be a lamb or a goat. And I want you to kill it. <clears throat> Verse seven. Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Okay? Kids are watching. Dad, what are you doing? <laughs> then you shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. You shall eat it. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. Look at this. With your belt fastened. No pajamas here. Your sandals on your feet. Not kick back to the lazy boy, relaxing. Nope, this is a meal with the mission. A meal with the purpose and your staff in your hand. When you eat this meal, you better be ready to go. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Why is it called the Passover? Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. It's a prophecy at this point. 
and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Look at this. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you and I will strike the land of Egypt. Okay, why is this meal called the Passover? Because the just wrath of God was coming to town and if they obeyed God by putting the blood on their doors, God's wrath would pass over them and go to the next house. Now, I want us to see something vitally important for us to understand what is going on here. God said, I'm coming to town to show the difference between Egypt and Israel, between the world and my people. Now, you can look at this story and you can easily separate the good guys and the bad guys. Clearly, Egypt is bad enslaving, murderous, idolatrous, rejecting God, resisting God. They're clearly the bad guys. Israel are sufferers. They're enslaved, right? They're, they're victims in a lot of ways. But to read the story just with good guys and bad guys is to miss the point of the story. And listen, there are clear good guys and bad guys, and we have to separate them. Bad guys need to be judged. Bad guys and gals need to go to prison. Bad guys need to be put down. That needs to happen, okay? But there's something deeper here in the story that we all have to see. When the holy God comes to town, everyone is in danger. Interestingly enough, it's not just the Egyptians who are at risk when God comes to town. The text says that even the Israelites, if they either don't put the blood over their doors or if they put the blood on their doors and then they come out from under that, look at verse 22 and 23. It says this, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So if you were like some good old-fashioned Midwesterners and you heard the tornado was coming to town and you went out your front door to watch it, you were under the threat of judgment. Like, hey, you know what? I'm an Israelite. I got nothing to fear. I know the God. I, I was raised in a Christian home. I'm going to go watch the destroyer. You were in danger. Or you just had enough swagger or spiritual pride to go, you know what? I'm actually way better than those Egyptians. Those wicked Egyptians. Ugh. I don't even need, I don't need blood. Why would I need blood? I'm a good person. I'm not going to put blood on my door. That's, that's ugh. It's disgusting. What's up with all this blood? No, I'm far too educated for that. Then you too would be under the just, righteous, 
holy judgment of God. See, the Israelites, were, they were the good guys. They were sufferers. They were victims. But because of the nature of sin, we're never just victims. And having a victim mindset is very dangerous for you. To be the type of person that only looks out and see the pride in other people, guess what? You're proud. And your spiritual pride has made your heart so hard, you think you're looking down on someone. You don't realize, you don't realize that you are in danger of the wrath of God. See, Israel needed to understand they weren't just sufferers, they were also sinners. And how many of us, we can point out the finger and we know who sinned against us, but how often do we point the finger back at ourselves and say, look how I've responded sinfully to being sinned against. See, that's what sinners do. Because we're sinners, someone sins against us, we sin back. You get mad at me, I'm gonna get mad at you. You get harsh with me, I'm gonna get harsh with you. You gossip about me, I'm gonna gossip about you. You push away from me, I'm gonna push away from you. Sinners respond sinfully to being sinned against. So we're not meant to look at this story and go, oh, poor Israelites. God will just welcome them in because they've had a real tough go of it, 430 years in slavery. No, they needed to recognize they too were under the just, righteous wrath of God. Scripture tells us that we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And sinners deserve the just wrath and judgment of God. Now, people get scared of wrath. Wrath isn't God's emotion. Like he gets, he just loses his mind and lashes out. Wrath is his love pointed at some, at some work of injustice. That's what wrath is. Wrath is the love of God pointed at the redemption or reconciliation or the execution of some form of justice. And so God looks down here and he's stepping down to make things happen and he knows he's bringing the wrath. See, all of us want God to judge those other people. I want God to judge the, the real bad, judge the, judge the Egyptians, judge the real wicked people. We don't realize that when he comes to town, he judges all injustice. That means your idolatry. That means your false worship. That means your lying, your stealing, your sexual immorality. When he comes to town, he judges it all. Everyone who has failed to love God and honor God with their whole life. Everyone who has not treated someone else the way they want to be treated. We have all committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe and we deserve to pay for our sins with our life. I want you to think about this. This is the difference between every other religion on planet earth and Christianity. Christianity says the wrath of God is hanging above you like a giant weight. And you deserve for the cord to be cut and it to crush you for your sins. Every other religion recognizes this reality. We feel a weight. We feel a guilt. We feel a shame. We feel a disconnection. We feel a broken brokenness. We know there's something wrong. Every other religion says, here's what you do to make it right. Be better. Be smarter. 
Be more enlightened. Be kinder. Don't kill any animals. Don't crush any bugs. Every other world offers you some way to make yourself right before a righteous God. That's not what Christianity does. Christianity says what you feel is true. That darkness, that weight that's hanging above you, that you feel like is going to crush you any moment, that is reality. And there is only one place where you can go that you can find shelter from that and that that weight is the wrath of God, the justice of God. There's only one place where you can go to be safe. There's only one place where you can go to hide from the payment that your sins deserve. And God makes it perfectly clear in the story of the Passover what saves the Israelites. He says this, verses 13 and 23. The Lord saw the blood and passed over them. What? In the story of the Passover, the weight of God's wrath is about to fall on them, but instead, it falls on a lamb. They deserve to be killed, but instead, the lamb is killed. And if they killed the lamb and they put its blood on the door, they would be saved. Think about this. Alec Moyer, commentator, scholar from an Old Testament, he says this, the essence of faith is trust that obeys. When the destroyer comes to town, the destroyer, when the destroyer comes to town, he's asking one question. Is there blood on the door? That's it. He doesn't ask, how strong is their faith? He doesn't ask, how good of a husband is that guy? He doesn't ask, how gentle were those parents today? None of that matters. All that matters is one thing. They believed God's word. If you kill an animal and put its blood on the doorpost, you will be saved. And they obeyed God by actually putting the blood on the doorposts. And then when the destroyer showed up, he had one job. Is there blood on the doorpost? All right, I'm out of here. It didn't matter if mom and dad were at each other's throat inside. It didn't matter if dad had killed the animal and cooked, and mom had cooked the meal and they said, all right, here it is. And the kid's are like, gross, I hate that. And mom's all mad and dad, you're gonna eat the, it doesn't matter if they're fighting inside. Their supposed morality doesn't determine their salvation. What determines their salvation? Did you believe the word of God and was your belief evidenced by your obedience by putting the blood on the doorpost? And if it was, the angel, the destroyer, God himself saw the blood and passed over. Verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so. Praise God. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, 
the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. God did exactly what he promised to do. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron, look, by night, and said, up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. This is why God told them to dress and be ready. Why? God was not making salvation possible. God was accomplishing salvation. He was saving people. He wasn't giving them a ladder to climb. He was climbing down the ladder and saving people from the just wrath of a holy God. And when he did it, everybody knew it. They were saved from the wrath of God and they were delivered from their oppressors, delivered out of the hands of Egypt. And God said, God came, he killed them, he delivered them this moment. He said, go. And they took off. Only Christianity offers you salvation accomplished. The wrath of God has been averted and they are now free. So the wrath of God that they deserved went to the lamb and now the chains that bound them, two two analogies, two metaphors for sin. The wrath of God I deserve went to the lamb. I averted that. And the slavery to sin, the slavery to Pharaoh, now I'm free. Go. Now you can ask, why did, why did this work? Two things. One, substitution. In every house, a firstborn died. It was either a lamb or a son. But death entered every house because the wrath of God must be poured out against all sin. Secondly, there was satisfaction. The blood of the lamb satisfied the wrath of God. Theologians call this propitiation. Big word. It, is, it means this, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath towards us to favor Propitiation is this. Not only is God's wrath diverted, but now his wrath becomes love towards us, becomes favor and affection for us. Now I said this earlier. If we don't understand the Passover, you won't ever really understand Jesus. Here's why. When Jesus shows up in the Gospels in John 3 and starts preaching, this is what he says. Quote, the father loves the son, And has given all things into his hand. Listen, here it is. This is important. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus says three important things here. When he says the wrath of God remains. Remains. We are born 
like Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. When he's always trying to, he's got that piano. We are born with the piano over our head. We are born, the wrath of God remains on us. We are born with the wrath of God over our heads and there's only one thing that can divert it. And Jesus tells us very specifically here, it is this, whoever believes in the son, that's Jesus, has eternal life. That means the wrath of God will be diverted. The wrath of of God will pass over him. Now listen, this is important. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not get this eternal life. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is not just believe it in your heart and then just go on about your life. In the Passover, Moses says, here's what you gotta do. You gotta sacrifice the lamb and you gotta put the blood on the door. And And they can say, oh, okay, I believe that. I believe that. That's not what saved them. It was not mental assent. It was faith that led to obedience. They had to say, oh, I believe that, and now put the blood on the door. If the blood wasn't applied, they weren't saved from the wrath of God. And so Jesus here says, it's a faith that leads to obedience. That when we put our trust in Jesus, it's going to change the direction of our life. It's going to change the shape of our life. It's more than just a mental assent. Jesus is saying here, If you don't do that, you don't put your faith in Jesus that leads to a new change in life, then the wrath of God remains on you. The piano is still over your head. Jesus is saying that we are all under the wrath of God, just like the Egyptians and the Israelites. God, in the person of Jesus, has literally come to town. And we deserve for him to cut the string and to die for our many sins. And yet, once again, Jesus, or God, has provided a way of escape. And once again, it still only comes by faith. We must trust God, believe his word, believe his son. Yet this time, our faith isn't witnessed in the killing of a lamb. Hopefully you realize by now, that's not the application part of this sermon. We're all gonna go home and start sacrificing a Passover lamb again, putting blood on our walls again. No, why? Why aren't we doing that? Because this time there was a new lamb. This time, there was a final lamb. This time, there was a perfect lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What? That little lamb could take the place of a person? How does that work? I don't know how it works. The only thing we know is it pointed forward to the ultimate fulfillment of it. That is Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's pushed us out of the way and said, cut the cord. He received the full weight of the wrath of God that we deserved 
He received it on the cross. He has taken the wrath of God upon his body in its full intensity. He absorbed the wrath of God for us in his body on the cross. And now what are we to do? If you confess your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection for you, this is what happens. He applies the blood to you. You are under the blood. You are in Christ. Even more than that, even more than just knocking us out of the way and absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf, he goes even further and God adopts you as his own child and his love and affection will be yours for eternity. The intensity of the wrath of God is rivaled by his intensity for his love for you. Reality is, every person here, you can either hide yourself under the blood of the lamb or one day you will find yourself trying to hide from the wrath of the lamb. See, we're in the middle of the story. Story's not over. The lamb's coming back. He's not coming the same way he came the first time. He's not coming humble and riding on a donkey. He's coming on a white horse. He's coming to execute judgment. He says blood's blood's gonna run in the street as high as a horse's bridle. Everyone who refuses to accept him as Lord and Savior will be crushed under his feet. And there, when that happens, there's no place to hide. They say they, hide, they try to hide themselves in the rocks, in the caves in the rocks to try to hide from the wrath of the lamb. Here's the reality. The, and it's only offered in this life. The only place to hide from the wrath of the lamb is under the blood of the lamb. The last thing I want you to see is this. The scriptures scriptures that we're talking about today are about two things. One, it's about the event of the Passover, salvation accomplished that we need to see and we need to celebrate. But secondly, it's about the meal of the Passover. He said, every year I want you to celebrate this and do this liturgy, do this worship experience, right? Eat this meal, wear these clothes, remember it. God gave them a meal to eat every year to remember this event. Now, this is interesting. This is, I kind of tongue-in-cheek say that this is Jesus' worst sermon, okay? Tongue-in-cheek because he didn't preach a bad sermon. But if you judge it by results, this is his worst sermon. John chapter six, this is what Jesus says. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, you have no life in you. Or whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, 
I say this is his worst sermon because everyone was like, ill, gross. This is a hard saying. I'm out of here. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. But now on the other side of the cross, this makes perfect sense to us. Listen, Jesus is the perfect lamb, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed in our place. But he's also the Passover meal. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he made sense of this parable and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it and remember me. This is my blood poured out for you, the cup of the new covenant. Drink it and remember me. And as often as you do it, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until I come again. And so the Lord, as Jesus himself, has given us, in a sense, a new Passover. A new liturgy that we celebrate every time we come together. How do we know that we've been forgiven? He gave us his body. He gave us his blood. He's the Passover lamb. What are we to do? Eat his flesh. Drink his blood. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us this morning. Father... I thank you for this story. I thank you for calling us. I thank you for drafting us into it, writing us into it. I pray that we would understand it, that we would believe it, that our hearts would be moved by it, our lives would be shaped by it. I pray that every person here would, be, would find themselves safe from the wrath of God because the blood of Jesus Christ would be applied to them. Would you give them the faith to believe it and the heart to respond rightly and worship you Enjoy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.